is basically uh, dividing up the territory, dividing up the area of the wall that they were building. Okay, now, (laughs) one thing that I learned this week when you pick a book of the Bible, there are commentators that just skip chapters, all right, and that makes it really, really difficult. And so what happens is you show up to that and you're like, this guy built this section, this guy built this section. And so what happens is, is there's people that just, they just, all right, go to chapter four. So I don't want to do that, but I want us to find some principles that we can use uh, as a church, because I think there are some valuable principles you find in Nehemiah chapter three, but we're going to work our way around to it. So uh, a couple things we're going to look at first. How many of you guys are, are you the type of person when you're putting things together that you, look, you skip the instructions? I tell you what, men are notorious for that, right? I absolutely despise looking at instruction books. I probably shouldn't because the fact, like just a couple weeks ago, uh, I had bought a, a chair for my office and I was like, man, this is easy. There's only like four or five parts to this thing. I don't need to look at the pictures. I don't need to look at the instruction book. So what I did, I just started piecing it together. And you know what I found? I had the, the, the wheels on the opposite side of the chair they belonged on. And I had to scrap it, take it back apart, and then do it the right way. And I was just thinking this week, I read an article that talked about warning labels. You ever read the warning labels? They, they can be hilarious sometimes. Uh, they had one specific one for a, a lady's uh, hair straightener. Listen to some of these things it said. It says, do not use while in the shower. Makes sense. Don't drop it into the water. Do not uh, let heated surfaces touch your eyes. You just wonder what type of people even try that kind of thing. Here's another one. Don't use it while you're sleeping. Like if you had a bad hair day, maybe that explains a lot. You tried to do your hair while you were asleep. Uh, here's another one, a Tesco tiramisu dessert. It said, do not turn upside down, but it was written on the bottom of it. <laughs> you have uh, Mark Spencer bread pudding. It says, the product will be hot after heating. <laughs> that makes sense. All right, then there's Boots Children Cough Medicine. It says, do not drive a car after taking this medication. How many kids are driving? <laughs> Another one, Nitol sleep aid, warning it may cause drowsiness. And then my favorite one I really enjoyed was this child's Superman costume. It says, wearing this garment does not enable one to fly. I could definitely see one of my boys needing to read that label. You know, it's a good reminder of the fact that instructions are important, aren't they? Um, I was reading in one of John MacArthur's books. I always enjoy reading some of his books, but he wrote uh, a story about the following thing. Uh, Evidently, the British needed to be more careful about reading their instructions. They were using, they had heard about the use that NASA had of simply using what they called the, the chicken gun. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It's a gun that they built specifically to launch at windshields at a high velocity Uh, to directly into windshield of airliners, military jets, even space shuttles so that they would test it out to see if it could uh, sustain that kind of high-velocity impact from birds in the air. And so what happened was is these British engineers, they asked NASA to let them borrow this chicken gun. And so what happened was is they wanted to test it out on one of their high-speed trains that they were building. And so they brought this gun over from NASA 
and they, they constructed it, they built it, and the testing site was arranged and the gun was loaded with a dead chicken placed inside of it. And when the gun was fired, the engineers stood in shock when the chicken hurtled out of the barrel, smashed through the front windshield, it, sh- uh, it went through a shatterproof windshield all the way through the, the panel, the, the control console. It broke the engineer's backrest in two. It embedded itself in the back wall of the cabin. So the British uh, sent NASA the disastrous results of the experiment and asked for an explanation. And all they got back from NASA was one instruction. Next time you need to thaw the chicken. (laughs) How about that? You know, it's really important to read instructions. (laughs) That's so true. Man, I hate to even say it. My wife's going to use that on me. (laughs) Read the instructions, buddy. And, you know, it's sometimes when it's easy for us to say that when we talk about equipment, you need to, to read the instructions. But sometimes when we talk about the church, we think that the church is just something that will naturally happen on its own. You couldn't be further from the truth. Um, well, the, the point is, is this, is that God's word gives us some important instructions when it comes to the church. And it gives us an important blueprint to follow. And what I want to do tonight is this. We're eventually going to come into Nehemiah chapter 3. But I want us to see and take a look back in the New Testament for us to gather some principles about what the Bible says about the church and how it's to function. Uh, The word church, and we've gone over this many times. You guys have been taught this, but it's good to to be reminded of it. The word church comes from the word ekklesia, which meaning ek means out, klesia means called out. So the church is a group of people that have been called out of the world, and they've been placed into the body of Christ. You see, God came and he called us out. He's the one that pursued us and went after us and began to work in our heart through the Holy Spirit. And God began to draw us, and when we came to faith in Christ, he took us out of the world. Uh, We were used to be enemies of God. He calls you out of that, puts you into the body of Christ, and you're called out. He saved you through the cross of Calvary. Now, not only did he call you out of the world and put you into the body of Christ, but from that moment, he begins to call believers to go back into the world, to be in the world but not of it, and to be calling other people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so here's the question we're going to look at. What are the blueprints, what are the instructions that God has for the church? Now, that's so important for us. Now, turn in your Bibles. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll see the instructions that God has for the church. It's first of all, we'll notice that it's compared to a living human body. The church is compared to as a body. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 verses 14 through 18. Notice what it says. For the body is not one member... But many, what does he mean by that? The body's made up a lot of different parts. It's not just one part, it's many parts. So verse 15, if the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I'm not of the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, Where were the smelling? Verse 18, 
But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. Now notice the manual for a church, the operating instructions for a church, it functions more like an anatomy chart than an organization chart. Now what we mean by that is that when God looks at the church, he looks at us and he has us function. Each member has a spiritual gift that he gives them. So that they, each member has a gift that he's given them that they're to use to build up the body of Christ. And so here what was happening in this, Paul is using an illustration of the fact that the body, uh, the, the church, is like a body. Each member has a different role, a different capacity, a different gift that's to be used inside the church. And when the members, the whole, are using their gifts Within the church, it begins to unify the body of Christ because we begin to minister to each other. Now, that's essential for the body to work correctly. If you get one specific member that doesn't want to do its role, then what happens? There becomes a, a dysfunction within God's church. You'll begin to have gaps. You'll begin to have the, the church not operate at its full capacity. And so what happens is, is that not only that, but there's a need for a diversity of gifts. Notice that he start, starts talking about an eye and hands and smelling and a nose. The fact is, is that if everybody had the same gift within the church, what would the church look like? It would be uniform. It would be everybody's the same. It would mean that there would be people that don't have gifts that we need within the church to operate the way God intended it, Correct? And so what happens is, is that uh, it's important for us to recognize that uh, for a church to operate and to work the way it's meant to be, we have to work together like a body and it's different parts. See, what was happening in the church at Corinth was that there was a big debate, there was a big problem that was going on because some other people that were in the church, they desired some of the more prominent roles. And so they began to complain, well, my role isn't as important as such and such's role, I want something that's better. I want more of a speaking role. Now, I want you to imagine what that would look like with a team. I, I can give you a really good example of that right now because teams need to have different roles on your team. And if you know your team and you know your roles, then what happens? Usually the team will work really well together, but my, none of my teams are doing good right now, so I'm not, we're not going to talk about that. But here's the thing is that within the church, we have different roles, different capacities, and the fact is, is that God's the one that gives the gifts. Look back, uh, same chapter, if you look at verse uh, 11, it says, but all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as what? As he wills. Who's the one that wills? God. God is the one that's dishing out the gift. So if you begin to complain about the gift that God gave you, you're basically doing what? God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you, uh, I, I deserve a better role than this. I don't want to do this specific thing. Well, see, that, what happens in a church that does that is that we begin to have dysfunction. There's a disability within the body of Christ. See, I really believe that inside of every church, God gives all the members the gifts and abilities that are needed in order to build up that local assembly. You, you're following me? Because God's the one that gives it as he wills. He's not going to will that his church has misfunction within it, right? 
He wants to make sure that it's able to be mature, well-rounded, that all the gifts are represented within the church so that the church can function the way that God intended it to function. D.L. Moody made this statement. I think it's fantastic. Now, the words of D.L. Moody in this, uh, in this specific past, uh, thing that I read, it almost sounds like it's today. Listen to what he said. A great many people have got a false idea about the church. They have an idea that the church is a place simply to rest in, to get into a nicely cushioned pew and to contribute to the charities and listen to the minister and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy <laughs> is all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their mind. I find that that's very true, don't you? Uh, in our current modern day, and, and I'm just give me one second here because I just think it's very true for, for today. We have become very consumeristic in our approach to church. Church has become a place of what ministry can you offer me? What can you do to minister to me and my family, to me and my needs? And we've made church more of a horizontal thing where we expect people to serve us and see the early church and the church the way it's meant to function is not what can you do for me, but it's what can I do to serve the body of Christ, to use the gift that God's given me in such a way that I can minister to other people. You see, we've made church very selfish, very self-centered. Would you agree with that statement? And folks, here's the point is that within the church, when a church operates that way, there's a dysfunction. It's operating against the instruction manual. There's going to be problems. And so I encourage you, as we think through this, uh, we're going to bring it around to Nehemiah and see how that applies. But look at, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to show you another passage. Ephesians chapter 4. And if you'll look at verses 11 through 13, I want to show you why I believe that we've gotten to the point where we think that ministry, it just belongs to the pastors of the church. You know that there is a, a lot of people out there that think that ministry should only be done by the pastors of the church. They might not even say it, but based on the way that the church operates, they think, hey, we'll just pass it over to the pastors. The pastors should be the one. If I put my tithe in the plate, then it's their role, their job to do all the ministering. Look at what Ephesians chapter 4 says, verses 11 through 13. And I want to point out something to you. Look at what it says. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints. And notice that there is a comma there. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we've all come to the unity of the faith. Now I want you to notice something that you probably won't notice. Now, those of you that have like a New King James Version, you'll notice that in between the word perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, there's no comma there. Now, what's happened is, is in the translation of it, uh, you have to commas. How many of you re recognize Greek? There's no punctuation marks, okay? You don't have that. So what happened was, is when the translators came in and they're, they're trying to interpret the passage, they're trying to translate it into English, they had to try to get the gist of the idea and insert grammar marks, okay? Now, if you put the comma after 
the, for the perfecting of the saints, it appears like that the ministering, okay, look back at verse 11, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, comma, and for the perfecting of the work of the ministry, comma, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Is that it appears like it's the role of the pastors, the apostles, the evangelists to do all of those things. But in some of the newer translations, you'll notice that there's no comma in between it. And there's a reason for that. Is the idea is that the pastors, the ministers, the pastor teachers are there to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. It's one idea. That the role of the pastors and the evangelists and all of them is to build up the body of Christ so that they in turn can begin to minister. That's a more accurate view of what the scripture teaches, folks. Okay, are you following what I'm trying to say? Hopefully I did a good job explaining that. Now, the fact is, is that it's not just the role of pastors to minister. As a matter of fact, if it was that way, we would be very, very limited in what our church could do. I am thankful that for the fact that we have deacons. We have many of you that head up Sunday school classes where you can follow up on people. You can minister to so many people because you have the, you have the contact with them. And there's so many people in a church our size to care for that if we didn't, it would be a really difficult job. Now, what happens here is I want you to notice, look at verse 13. It says, till we all come in the unity of the faith. The idea of the unity of the faith, whenever you see the word the faith in scriptures, it's the idea of the body of doctrine or the body of truth. He's saying that, uh, that we have this edifying so that, that what happens is there will be a maturity to the point where the people in the body of Christ will come to the unity of the faith. We'll come into an agreement of the body of doctrine that will be an agreement of what the foundational truths of Scripture are. Now, let's continue on. Now, look at verses 14 through 16. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and by the cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Now notice he's talking about the benefits of building the body. Now stick with me just for a few minutes and we'll, we'll get into the next part. The benefits of building the body is that as the group of people begin to use their gifts and the body of Christ begins to grow and begins to mature, what will happen is this. We will be rescued from spiritual deception. You recognize one of the reasons why people err in their faith or they're deceived about what the Bible teaches is why. It's a lack of maturity. It's a lack of maturity. Do you, have you recognized that one? That's why he says, look at verse 14. He says that we henceforth be no more what? No more that we're, we're no more children. He's not talking about age. He's talking about spiritual maturity. You see, one of the reasons why people aren't spiritually mature is that they're not actively engaged in a church where they're building up the body for the work of the ministry, where people are actively engaged in using their gifts within the church. If you do not serve in your local church, you know what happens? There will always be a lack of maturity there. You'll never fully mature to your full capacity. Now, I want you to notice what he does. Uh, the first reason is because you can be spiritually deceived if you're not maturing in your faith. You notice how kids can be easily deceived? 
Have you ever noticed that before? Just this week, uh, Branson, he was joking around. He saw this person on TV, and he, it was this guy with really long hair. And he had questions about, he said, Dad, why does that guy have long hair? I was like, Branson, you know I used to have really long hair like that. He was like, Dad, you really, you had long hair down to your shoulders before? It's like, yeah, son, you never saw my picture? He was like, he's kept going. He starts like walking around telling Judson, I'm, I was like, Branson, I was totally joking with you. They're just easily, they're easily deceived. They're gullible, right? Hey, and folks, one of the things that happens, y'all didn't know that when y'all were looking for a new pastor. All right, so here's the thing is that, uh, that never happened, by the way. All right, so here's the point is that uh, one of the, the characteristics of somebody that's immature in their faith is what? They're gullible. They're easily deceived. And folks, do you not see that's happening in our society today? Why do you think there's these ministers on TV that can promise to do this, this, and this, and people give money to it? People are immature in their faith. They don't have a body that they belong to that's pouring into them, that's building them up in their faith. And so they're easily deceived. Now notice another reason why you're to use your gifts, you're to be belong in a body of Christ is another reason is this, to protect from spiritual disability within the church. Look at what happens in verse 16. From whom the whole body fit jointly together and compacted by which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. What's he talking about? Every joint, every part, every member begins to minister to the whole. And what happens is, is that as they're doing that, it's supplying the measure uh, to every single part. It's increasing the body. It's causing it to grow and to mature the way God intended it to be. And so everyone contributes to the process of uh, using their spiritual gifting that God's given them. And here's the point, folks. Every person within the church should have some capacity that they're serving other people in the local church. Right? Now, what I want us to do is uh, I want us to compare what we read in these passages to Nehemiah chapter 3. And I think it's going to be very important for us. Here's the, and my, my goal for you is this. Would you just ask yourself this question? What is my spiritual gift and how would God have me use it in the church? How would God have me use that gift in the church to edify the body of Christ? Okay, so let's look at lessons from Nehemiah. So turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Turn with you in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, I want to update you a little bit about where we're at. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 2, we found that Nehemiah, he came into Jerusalem. And when he first showed up, you remember he didn't show up and begin to just start building the walls back up. He took three days where he got off of his horse, or he went out in the middle of the night, he got off his horse, and he starts investigating the wall. You remember that? And, and one of the interesting things that happens in the passage, if you look at chapter 2, verse 12, look at what it says. And I arose in the night, and some few men with me, neither I told I any man what my God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode on. So he goes out in the middle of the night, and he still hasn't talked to anybody yet. Remember, he's inspecting the wall. He's asking God, God, what do you want us to do in this city? How would you have us to rebuild these walls? And he's praying and he's asking God to give him direction. Now, what happens is, is that he begins to formulate a plan. 
for how they're going to rebuild the walls. Now, that's a huge task. You remember God was using this man in a mighty way. God had put him in the king's palace, and, and, and just by chance, not by chance, by God's providence, God begins to work on the king's heart. The king notices that he had been sad. You remember that? And he gave him, he said, what is it that you need? And he said, how could I not be sad when, when the place of my father's sepulchers have been totally destroyed and, and totally wiped out? And the king gave him letters to go all the way back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And so here in this part, Nehemiah has gone out, he's inspected the walls, and now he's going to begin to uh, ask uh, all of the people in the city to begin to join together in this endeavor to rebuild the walls. Notice what he says. Let's read this passage together. Verses 17 and 18 in chapter 2. Then said I unto them, you see the distress that we are in. You remember how we talked about that? Why is Nehemiah using words like we? Had Nehemiah been there where he, he hadn't been there. He had been back in where? He had been back in Persia before, right? And here he is and he says, you see that the, the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for this good work. You remember how it happened? Man, don't you love the words of Nehemiah? That's leadership right there. He's looking at what's going on in the city, and he, he could have easily blamed it on them. He could have said, you guys are the ones that left us this way. You should have built the walls a long time ago. He didn't say that. Nehemiah comes to him, and he says, we have a task in front of us. We have a job to do. And he begins to tell him how God had already been working. Hey, folks, you want to get people motivated to a task? You begin to lay out to them how God's already working and moving. People will get behind that. And not only that, but when you're willing to shoulder the burden with them and work together for God's work, you know what happens? People get excited about things like that. So Nehemiah says, let's do this together. And he's challenging them and encouraging them and drawing them into the work to do this task together. Now, Nehemiah had a plan to rebuild the wall. And basically, uh, his, his endeavor and how he was going to rebuild the wall was this. His plan was divide and conquer. What I mean by that is that in order for them to rebuild the wall, they were going to have to divide up sections of the wall that they were going to rebuild. And so he was going to give certain tasks to certain people. Now, what I find interesting in Nehemiah chapter 3, you probably haven't heard very many messages on Nehemiah chapter 3. I told you commentary, skip it. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 3, you'll find that there's over 40 different names of leaders, of sections that were going to rebuild the wall. I find that very interesting. They were going to organize these task force where they would carefully plan the section of the wall that they were going to rebuild. Now, I want us to, to look at this as lessons that we can learn from Nehemiah, okay, about working together. The very first lesson is this. All of the people who were willing to work were given an opportunity. If there was anybody that wanted a role or a part within the building of the wall, they were given an opportunity. For instance, let me mention to you the different types of people that rebuilt it. Very interesting. There were priests, 
There were professionals. There was people that were normal, uh, uh, not normal, noble, normal people. That's good. There were normal people too. All right, so there was nobles. Way to go, right? Nobles, all right? Then there was uh, a common stock. I guess that's normal. All right, single men, women. There were, uh, there were mentioned in the work, there was professionals, politicians, residents, outsiders, craftsmen, artists. There were people given opportunity. All of these, some people were given tasks that were close to their home. Some people were outsiders that would commute in. Some repaired the existing walls while others had to start from scratch. There were some uh, that uh, had to work on the existing. Some of them uh, had no better job than just to gather the scraps from the wall and carry off the trash. They worked at different gates. They had different opportunities, different situations that they were placed in at different areas of the wall. Now follow along. This is what I want us to see. It's interesting that the very first group that Nehemiah starts off with is the high priest. Now follow this. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1. Notice what it says. Then Elishab, the, whole, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it, and they set up the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia, and they sanctified it unto the tower of Hananel. Now notice what happens here. This is incredible. These towers were on the westward side of the Sheep Gate. I think we have a map back there. It's not great, but uh, it'll have to do for tonight. Okay, so there's a map where they work on the Sheep Gate. You'll notice that it's on the uh, upper uh, north or side. Now, you'll have to see that it's the darker one on the inside. The outer wall is the new wall, or, or the more, uh, the present one, and the inner wall is the old, old wall, okay? So he was going to be working up around where the Sheep Gate was. Now, it was significant because the priest specifically would deal with what task? The sacrifices. If they were going to work specifically on the sheep gate, that was where they would bring in the, the sheep, the lambs that would be brought for the temple sacrifice. It was considered holy ground for them. It would have been an incredible task for these, these, uh, the high priest as he organized this group to rebuild this gate. Now, it was impossible for them to recognize that more than, uh, no more than 400 years later, that would be the exact gate that Jesus Christ would walk out of and go into the Garden of Gethsemane and begin to pray. Think about that. These high priests that had prepared these, this gate for these sheep and these lambs to come in and out of, it was going to be that very gate that Jesus Christ one day would walk out of when he walked into the Garden of Gethsemane. And later when he, the, the soldiers went out to arrest him, it would be the very gate that they would walk him right back through. Think about that. And then you look at passages like Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says that he was brought as a, in as a lamb led to the slaughter. Wow. But the priests, you know, normally they didn't do tasks like this, right? But here in this passage, they, they were like the rest of the people. They put their hand to the work. These were the people that led in worship. They put that aside for a time in order to rebuild the wall. What a good example. Now, a second uh, principle that we can get from this is this. Some of the people did not necessarily know how to do the work. Didn't that encourage you? You ever done a job where you're like, man, I really don't have any business doing this? Any job that's around the house, that's basically how I feel. All right, so um, 
the thing is, is this, is that there were people that weren't, they were unprepared for the task they had to do. Look at what it says in verses eight and nine. Next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Harhiah. Man, these are great names. And of the goldsmiths. Okay, so this guy was a goldsmith. Next unto him also repaired Hananiah, the son of one of the apothecaries. Okay, an apothecary, uh, that could be uh, a, a perfume maker, a medicine maker, okay? Y'all have any other translations that says a different word? Any? Say that again? Perfumers. A perfumers. Okay, very good. That's, that's what it is. Okay, and then they fortified Jerusalem unto the board, broad wall, and next unto them repaired Rephiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of, half, uh, of the half part of Jerusalem. So look at the different types of people that you had at the task. You have a politician, a goldsmith, and a perfume maker that are all working on the wall. And that specific part, those guys, they were, had better, they were probably better at other types of jobs. But listen, they were willing to put their hand to the work and they used it. Evidently, Nehemiah, maybe he produced some extra workers to give them some supervision. We don't know. But somehow these people, they said, you know, I'm willing to do the work. I don't know how to do it, but I'm willing. Don't, isn't that a great attitude to have? I mean, I tell you, you get somebody that's available that'll say, hey, I, I might not be the best person for this, but I'm willing. I mean, I tell you what, in a church ministry, we'll take it all day, right? Just the people that will say, I might not be the best one, but I'm willing to pick something up and help. Man, and these guys pick up the trowel, and they begin to, to lay down the bricks and begin to rebuild the walls. Man, you can use people like that. Thank God for people like that. Then you have another principle that we could learn is that some of the people were able to do more work than the others. How about that? Now, uh, I want to point out something to you. Now, look in your passage, chapter 3. Look at these verses, okay? You have verse 11. Notice it says, and he repaired the other piece. All right? Then you're going to see down, and if you look at verse 19, you'll see in the passage, another piece over against the going up of the armory at the turning of the wall. Another piece. Notice that it's saying what? These are people that had already rebuilt portions of the wall, and they were doing what? They were going on to the next section. You can see that in verses 24, verse 27, verse 30. It's interesting that some people were able to do more than others. Hey, in a church ministry, isn't that true? There's some people that have a high capacity to be able to do a lot of different tasks within the church. And listen, folks, that's great. That's good for people like that. Not everybody's that way, and that's all right. But they did the job that they were asked to do, and they did more. It's a, it's a great example of people that are willing to go the extra mile, that are willing to go above and beyond just the regular church member. Now, another principle. Some of the people were willing to, do, uh, were willing to work in more difficult places than others. Now, this is particularly, this is pretty interesting part, okay? When you get into chapter 3 and you begin to study it, there were some portions of the gate that were easier than others. There were some jobs that were a whole lot more beautiful work to be involved in. Let's put it that way. Look at what it says down in verse 14. You'll notice this man named Malchiah, all right? Verse 14. But the dung gate repaired. Now, when we talk about the dung gate, it's exactly what you think it is. 
Whatever you're thinking, that's what it is, okay? So <laughs> verse 14, but the dung gate repaired by Malchiah, the son of Rachab, the ruler of the part of Bethserim, he built it and set the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. Basically, this was where all the garbage and all the refuse from the city would flow and it would go through this gate area. And this guy, what's really incredible is he's a part of the royal family, okay? This guy is wealthy, okay? Came from a good family, a good background, and it's a place that would have stunk miserably, okay? That's the very same gate where you would go out through it and you would go down into the Valley of Hinnom. That's where they would take all the garbage out and they would set it on fire. And man, that area would have smelled mis horrible, okay? It was a terrible, terrible job. But you compare his job, his location, with somebody else. Look at verse 15. But the gate of the fountain repaired Shalom, the son of Kolhose, the ruler of the part of Mizpah, he built it and covered it and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. And look, and the wall of the pool of Shiloh by the king's garden and unto the stairs that go down from the city of David. So in other words, you have this official that's, he's actually building the wall that's right by the king's what? His garden and he's got a pool set up there. So you have these one guy's working at the dung gate, all right? This other guy's working by a pool and there's a garden for him to look at. It's like those guys that tell you that they're suffering in Hawaii as a pastor. <laughs> Somebody's gotta do it. No, I'm just joking, all right. But here's the thing is that how important is it for you to have people that are willing to do tasks that nobody else will do? Can I get your attention? I, I, I tell you what, uh, you have people that'll go and work in a nursery with, with babies that are crying or you have babies that are, they have a dirty diaper, those are like the equivalent of somebody working at the dung gate, all right? I mean, these are people that are willing to do the dirty tasks that nobody else wants to do. I mean, even like husbands and wives don't want to change their own baby's diapers, let alone a baby that you don't eat, like that's not even yours. It's like, you take that. And folks, we need people that are willing to do tasks that nobody else wants to do. I'll be honest with you, it's people like that that challenge me. They're the ones that'll do the unsung task, the one that nobody else sees. You know, you need people like that in a church. People that'll, you would never know all the things that they do. And, and, I, and it's not to say that people that are laboring in the places where everybody wants to do it, it doesn't mean that their work isn't still done for the Lord. But listen, folks, there, it's hard to find people to do the difficult tasks that nobody else wants to do. I had somebody tell me this when I was uh, in Bible school, and I always appreciated it. You want to know if you're a real servant of God? Well, how do you act when people treat you like you're a servant? Man, that was, uh, I'll be honest with you, that's probably one of the best lessons I ever learned in Bible school. That was worth it. How will you act when people treat you like a servant? Man, that still rings in my ears even to this day. Because you know what a lot of people do when, when they have to be put in the role of a servant? You know what happens? They get ticked. And they don't like it. You treat them like a servant, all of a sudden it's like, okay, let's go. Thank God for people like that. Another important principle is this. Some of the people were willing to work harder than others. 
Go figure. <laughs> right? Just look at our country. I'm joking. All right, now, <laughs> even among those who were willing to work, there was one specific person, and I find this interesting because I'm scanning through Nehemiah chapter 3. Lord, please speak to me. All right, and so I'm looking through this chapter, and I, I see that there's only one person's name that's mentioned that Nehemiah stops and gives a special word about him. Look at Nehemiah uh, chapter 3, verse 20. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, earnestly repaired the other piece. From the turning of the wall unto the door of the house of Elisha, the high priest. Now, if you have your pen, you might circle that word earnestly. The word earnestly could be translated to burn or to glow. When Nehemiah pointed out this man and said he worked earnestly, this was a man that when he did his job, evidently there was a glow about him. Have you ever been around people like that? Where like when they're serving other people and they're in the middle of, of doing their job, they're just, they're, they're getting a joy from it and they, you could tell that they just like what they do. Man, I love seeing people like that. Man, you walk into the room and man, they're like that, holding that crying baby and they're smiling while they're, man, what in the world, what were you, where you come from? Because we need a dose of that. But the, the point is, is that, man, there was something about this guy as he was even going above and beyond and he was building extra portions of the wall. Nehemiah said he was doing it earnestly. Now, it could be, there's some translations that'll use the word, he was building it carefully. He was taking his time. But either way, this guy, I mean, he was really showing up. He was putting his heart into the work. Another principle, some of the people who were able to work wouldn't. You're like, even back then, even back then. You have them in every generation, all right? Uh, one author, and I, I liked uh, how he said this. He's, he said this. He makes the comment that Nehemiah not only mentioned the workers, but also the shirkers. You know, there's always going to be people that'll feed off the work of other people. Look at what he says in verse 5. And next unto the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. We're not told why. We don't know why they wouldn't like pitch in and begin to do the work. Hey, they were going to be the ones that would benefit from all the work that everybody else had done. Hey, don't you think that that happens? <laughs> I won't get into anything political, but you know what I mean. All right, there's, you know, the fact is, is some people will live off the work of other people, even when they're capable. And folks, just like that can happen in a country, it can also happen, happen in a church. And the fact is, is that uh, what, what we see here is that they weren't willing to put their necks to the work. That's how Nehemiah said it. 1 Corinthians 1.26, it says this, For you see that you're calling, brethren, how there's not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many, what? Noble that are called. You know, there's some people that they won't be called because they're just too good to do the work. They're not willing to humble themselves and do it. Another principle, all of the people who worked with their hands revealed the condition of their hearts. And this is where we're going to close and we're going to be done. Let me have you skip forward a little bit in your Bible. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4. And I want you to see this passage. It's fantastic. Folks, this is a perfect picture of what we're talking about a church should look like. 
Nehemiah chapter 4, look at verse 6. It says this. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. Why? Why were you guys able to rebuild the wall, Nehemiah? And he says this. For the people had a mind to work. Literally, it means that they put their heart into their work. They put their hearts into the work. Can I just, uh, just try to bring it closer to home for us tonight? We're in a point in our ministry where we really, really need people to step up and put their heart into the work. One of the areas that we're looking at, at trying to, to do some things is in our guest services. We're going to need people that are going to be willing to, when people coming onto our campus and they come to our church, we need people that will greet them and, and greet them with a smile and will tell people that we're glad that they came here. We have people we need to minister to. But in order for us to have things like this happen within a church, you know what you have to have? Workers. You have to have people. And folks, there's not a person here that's at this church that can't stand at a door and smile at a person that comes in. There's not a person that can't stand out in a parking lot uh, of, of, of the guest side of what we're wanting to do and just say, hey, we are thankful that you chose to come to our church today. We want you to know we're glad to have you here. Is there anything you need? And just to, to, to stick out your hand and to shake them and uh, shake their hand and just say, hey, we're glad that you're here today. Folks, here's the point is that inside the body of Christ, inside of every church, there is a task that every person can do. But you know what happens? What happens is, is sometimes we think, well, I can't do that, or I can't do that. Okay, there's certain roles you might not be able to do, but everybody can do something. Can I say that again? And just like, I, I hope you guys are in agreement with me. There's not a person here that cannot serve in some capacity. Amen. I wish I could, I, I would love to go into certain things that people do around our campus that nobody knows about. We have people in the service tonight you don't even, you would have no idea the things that they do at our church. They, they're, they're unseen, and people don't ever hear about it. The Lord knows about it. And folks, when we get into serving and using our gifts and our abilities, folks, these aren't just menial tasks. These are things that are eternal, that build God's kingdom. These are things that God rewards. These are the types of things that are eternal. We invest in people. Folks, the church is all about people. And if we, there ever becomes a point where we're not, you know what happens? That's how churches close their doors. That's why we have to be a group of people that are friendly, that love people, that serve people, that are willing to use our gifts and abilities, not because it's seen by others, but because we have a gift that God wants us to use. So what happened with these people is this. All of them looked at the wall, the task that was in front of them, and they said, what could be my part in rebuilding the wall? Hey, folks, you want to know what we should ask as church members? What can be my role in building the church? 
What task, what role, what, what would you have me to serve? Do you want me to change diapers? Do you want me to greet people? You want me to teach a Sunday school class? You want me to, 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 to help in vacation Bible school? Do you want me to help with a Metro Blitz where we go out and bring the gospel to other people? Lord, what task would you have me do? You want me to be a greeter? Do you want me to work in the children's ministry? You want me to help minister to the teens? Whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. And you know what would happen, folks? What happened in Nehemiah was this. They had a miracle happen in Jerusalem. You know what happened? 52 days, what happened? They rebuilt the walls, something they couldn't do in the previous 60 to 70 years. And everybody looked into the city of Jerusalem, and you know what they said? Man, only God could have helped them build it that fast. Folks, that's the type of ministry we want to have, right? We want to have a ministry where people look at it and they say, man, these people work together. They love each other. They're friendly. They use their gifts, their abilities, and people say, man, only God could do that at a church. All right, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. As the uh, ushers in the back, if you'll come forward with the offering plate. Lord, we come before you this evening and we ask that you would just, Lord, help us to recognize that we all play a role in the church. We all have a gift. We all have an ability. And Lord, I pray that you would burden our hearts to find a place to serve. There's so many roles inside of a church. There's so many things that that could be done, but we really don't have enough volunteers. And Lord, we pray that you would provide for those. Lord, I pray tonight that you would meet our needs. Lord, help us as we go out from this place tonight and that you would keep us safe. And we thank you for everything that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.